going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thank you so much capital you've got to win that's the only thing i know at any cost famously said by harold ballard and he will be the theme the topic of this episode owners doing bad things i suppose will be the topic but he was the subject of a documentary that's come out and as you've seen in the feed we have enjoyed breaking down pieces of art and entertainment and understanding more about sports and really about life through them. We certainly did that with Netflix's series Breakpoint. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back in the feed. And if you're waiting to listen to it until after you see the series, fair enough. But you can listen to this episode before you see this documentary. And the documentary is called Offside, the Herald Ballard story. You can find it on CBC Gem. It debuted at the Whistler Film Festival and it was immediately critically acclaimed. Might be a little bit biased. I play a small role in it. But in it, you're going to get perspectives on the infamous Leafs owner by many people. Former Leaf captains, Wendell Clark, Daryl Sittler, Lanny McDonald. You got perspective from journalists like Stephen Brunt. Basil Camisa and me. But really, what you understand is a character portrayal on someone who truly was a character in every sense of the word. It's brought to us by people who understand, certainly, that in order to tell amazing stories, you have to sow the good of someone and what makes them them, but also show the flawed. And that's what you see in this series. Speaking of the people behind it, executive producer Chuck Tatum, you know him from Arrested Development, How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, just to name a few. Producer Rachel Horvath, who's a delight, and you know her from You Gotta Eat Here, Big Food Bucket List, Pop Stars, heavy hitters in the industry, including the executive producer and CEO of the company that brought it to light, Lone Eagle Entertainment's Michael Geddes, and the narrator and director, someone you know, Jason Priestley. Well, I caught up with Michael and Jason to talk about the making of the doc, why it was an important story to tell, and what does it say about the current state of the Leafs as we look at their past? We go deep on Offside, the Harold Ballard story right now. You've got to win. That's the, only, that's the only thing I know. The Toronto Maple Leafs won in 1967. But since then, it's been no show for Harold and his boys. If I have to sit through an entire winter of this garbage with the Maple Leafs, this team is never going to get any better. He didn't play by the rules. You crossed him, you paid the price. Let me show that fat guy upstairs. If Harold Ballard existed in 2022, he would have been canceled. Why don't you like Harold Ballard? Oh, because of what he had to say about women. You want to get offended at that? It's stupid. All he cared about was having people in the seats and making money. Harold needs me. When I first signed my first contract, Harold was in jail at that time. A lot of people think uh, you're the problem here. Get out of here. This was him. You're unrepentant, totally unrepentant. Absolutely. Well, first off, congrats. I feel like it's almost like birthing a baby and now it's out uh, and the whole world comes and says it looks so beautiful and it look, looks like you. Uh, take me through the range of emotions 
now it's been in a couple theaters and be able to see people react to it um, and now get to see the masses start to, to react to it. Well, I think, yeah, anytime you start a project like this, which this one seemed to feel like three years, but in, you know, dog years, a hundred and uh, we got to the finish line. You know, it's, it's, when you go backwards in time, it's tricky. You never know when you stick your toe in the, in the well, how it's going to go. And we, we got there and um, it's just great that it's, it's going to inform a whole generation of people like myself, about what it was like, because we lived it. And then a new generation that's, heard of it uh, and heard of that era with Harold and, and the way things were, and, and it'll fill in a lot of blanks. So it's, it's exciting. I, I love, you know, one of the promo uh, elements to it. He didn't invent greed. He perfected it. Intentional with that language. What were you trying to communicate both in how you sell the film, but also with what's in it? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of, one, of the, one of the consistent through lines in the movie is everyone talks about Ballard's uh, cheapness um, when it came to uh, his dealings with the Toronto Maple Leafs. Also, his penchant for making money. He was, you know, he was a great promoter when it came to dealing with Maple Leaf Gardens and keeping it full. Um, uh, not only not only with uh, not only with selling tickets for people coming to see the Toronto Maple Leafs, but also keeping Maple Leaf Gardens full with with other uh, other things when the Toronto Maple Leafs were on the road, or or when it was the off season for the Toronto Maple Leafs. So um, so he uh, he was obviously good at making money and good at good good at keeping the money for himself and for the other uh, shareholders in Maple Leaf Gardens Limited. So. Without giving too much away, because we want people to see the film, you know, I was saying to you guys uh, before we sat down, there were so many great people in it, but there are so many, as me and my wife uh, joke about, like, producer fist pump moments, where you're doing the interview, you hear something like, that's gold, that's a nugget that we're definitely going to use. Anecdotally, for, for both of you, what's the one thing that you heard or you learned that you're like, okay, wow, that paints a picture as to who we're talking about, the era we're talking about? Well, there were, uh, there were. I, I mean, for for me, there were there were many moments like that because I was, uh, you know, I'm I'm of a younger, a slightly younger generation than than Michael, and and making this movie was a was a great education for me as to who Harold Ballard really was and 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 the real history of 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 his his rise up through the ranks of. Uh, of the Toronto Maple Leafs and and through the Silver Seven years and and when he uh, took over the team and and all the shenanigans that he pulled through the seventies, I was only really familiar with his with his shenanigans through the eighties. Um, but one of the, one of the great really enlightening moments, um, uh, uh, Mary Ormsby ta- talked about a uh, a moment on a on a radio show back in the back in the early seventies. Uh, Barbara Frooms. Uh, radio show where, where Harold Ballard called in one night and, and basically told her to shut up on her own radio show. Um, and, and while she was ta- telling us that story, I was literally, I was like writing down a note furiously to get our archives to try to find that, that uh, find that radio show. So we could use that in the, in the piece because I, I, I'd never heard of that. Like I had no idea that that had ever happened. Um, so that was, that, that was the first time that anything like that happened uh, during the piece. And then it continued to happen. All, all the way through the uh, the interview process. So listen, I mean, we're sitting here with somebody, Donovan, who gave us some great nuggets in, in this uh, documentary. So copy that. <laughs> um, it it really wasn't it really wasn't to me a uh, uh, an anecdote. But m- mind you, we've had many, many, many anecdotes thrown our way since we started this journey, so, uh, and a lot of them didn't and can't make the documentary. Quite frankly, but I I just I'm still. Uh, amazed that here was this sports owner in the 1970s uh, and he lived in the building. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what that is, but I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big building and it's, it can, I would think it'd be a very lonely place. I mean, I think it would actually have an effect on you and not in a good way to live in a big building, but we just accepted it when I was a, when I was younger. Oh, Harold. Oh yeah. He lives, he lives in the building. And uh, we accepted that. Now revisiting that through this documentary, I kind of forgotten that, and and it is so bizarre with the twenty twenty three lens looking backwards that way to say the owner of the team lived in his own building 
And uh, I, I, I can't stop chuckling about that. It just, it you can't make it up, right? And if it was a fictionalized version of a of a sports owner, and it was in the storyline that he lived in the building, you'd get laughed at. But you know, the truth is always stranger in fiction. I was like, what if George Steinbrenner would have yes. like built an apartment in Yankee Stadium? Like, how weird would that be, right? Bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> Larry Tannenbaum's just watching, walking around Scotiabank, going to you know Sure Nightclub uh, by himself. Yeah, it would, yeah. It would be. Yeah, and, and they go down in the morning and like you know, where's all the ice cream? You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny you say the the 2023 lens because I'm watching it, uh, experiencing you know other people's perspectives, and the one thing I thought of, especially with his relationship with the media and vice versa, was. This was this was Donald Trump before his time. But the gardens was his White House in a way. Did, did you guys have a, a similar reaction? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a great analogy when you say the White House as well. I mean, I think Harold knew uh, that very well. A lot of things he didn't know well, but he knew that relationship with the media very, very well. He was almost before his time, you could say. And he knew he had the keys to the door, and he was sitting and living inside a very prized possession where people needed access, and that was MLG, Maple Leaf Gardens. And lo and behold, he he had that power, and he exercised it. What a love-hate relationship, but an interdependent, interdependent relationship because Harold also knew he wanted and liked and almost reveled in getting headlines. So he knew he needed ink in the papers. He knew how to get it, but it was all around access and uh I think you said in the documentary, you know, he played the long game. Hmm. He knew he was he was always going to be there. Media people would come and go, and uh, they they knew it was more important to get access than to bump up against them. And I think that was your nugget, actually. Uh, and it's so true, right? I mean, it's 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 the way Harold played his game. He he wanted headlines and he wanted column inches, but the journalists needed, they, they had columns they needed to fill. Right. You know, a lot of the journalists told us that they actually had Ballard's phone number and they could call him anytime and he would just give them quotes. Like they would, he would just feed them information that he would talk to them happily about whatever they wanted. They get, they really had this like, symbiotic relationship where they, you know, he had what they needed and he was happy to give it to them. Like they really, they, they really worked hand in glove together. It was uh it was, it really was a, 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 like Mike said, it was a love hate relationship, but they, but they, it was like, it was like a codependent <laughs> relationship. You know what I mean? Dysfunctional relationship. Yeah. But, exactly. codependent, yeah. <laughs> but it was also the seventies and eighties and it was such a different time. And, I mean, we've we've gone come so far, and even you know, kids nowadays probably are going to see this documentary, and they can't believe it, the team was run like that. And now they know, all they know is MLSE, which is a solid state, first class organization, making all the right decisions all the time for the best interests of their team, and that is to win, right? Uh, that's the trust factor with the fans. That's not that wasn't there back then. That wasn't there. And they, you know, and the the league was much smaller back then. The amount of the amount of money that the the, the players were getting paid, the, you know, the TV contracts were much smaller. It was, you know, it was a it was a different time. It was, you know, it was an, it was an eighteen team league. It was a sixteen league when the, when our documentary starts. It was an eighteen team league by the time, uh, by you know, in the in the seventies, and then you know, once the WHA got absorbed, you know, it was, it was a twenty sixteen league. You know, it was you know, it was a very different game it was a smaller league it was a different time you know the amounts of money that every the amounts of money involved were different you know it was just it was it was different it was smaller and and there were a couple of mom and you know the Wurtzes were still involved and you know Ballard was still involved so there were still some family run operations but nobody ran it quite like Ballard mm-hmm. right he was still trying to run it like it was the 50s or the 60s, even though it was, you know, the 70s and the 80s and, and things had changed. But he was he was incapable of change or unwilling to change with the, with the times. Well, it's funny. I'm watching it and I'm seeing everything that's happening. Uh, and then, you know, leave the theater and throw on my phone and get push alerts. And owners behaving badly is not something that isn't a story right now. When you look at the NBA, the NFL, even the dub, the NW. SL, when you guys put together a story and reflect on it, how much of it is a period piece on the time? How much of it 
is a character study of the person and what motivates them and how much of it is a story of you know how this franchise is where it is today based off of you know it, its history yeah I, I think i think it's really about the man and the character and uh, that he had a chance to once he climbed that mountain and got the team and owned it outright for, per se and what did he do with it at that point he 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 gave up. It just he had a chance to really make something of it, and he didn't. So it speaks a lot about the man. As far as where the Leafs are today, I mean, they're in such a different place. I I think it's a, a stretch to say now that Harold uh, lurks in the background in, in any way. I mean, we've got we got a as I said earlier, a completely different organization running it. Uh, the team on the ice, the product on the ice, is is first among equals. I mean, they're doing all the right things. You couldn't say that in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. So uh, I think it's really this this doc's about a man who had power, who owned uh, and had a trust with the public, owning the crown jewel of the, con- the country and the na- national pastime sport called the Toronto Maple Leafs. And uh, what did he do with it? And what he did with it, you just can't believe. That's the fun part, the fun ride we take everybody on. Uh, lastly, before I let both of you go, just wonder your experiences. I, I watched it in, in real time before and after the film. The film evokes so much emotions from so many people, so many journalists that covered them, so many players that were part of the organization that it's almost like you guys were magnets where everyone was coming up to you, telling you their personal stories about him and about the time. Uh, what is that like for you to, to experience uh, in a way people reliving that time you know through you based off of this piece of work well you know what it was uh, uh it was it, it was really refreshing actually especially the players when they to see to see those players to see to, to see uh, to see Rick Five and to and to see Daryl Sittler and to see uh, to see those guys speak so openly and candidly and honestly about about not only their experiences, but about about the way that it made them feel, and about their feelings today when they when they look back on those times, to just to 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 feel their emotion that they that they still have about those experiences, um, it was really refreshing, you know, because these players today they speak in they speak in sound bites and it's and it's all very rote, you know, because they've had so much media training. You know, it was it was really refreshing to see these guys be so open and honest about their experiences. And for you, yeah, I mean, we we got so many players in in our tent to join this documentary because I think we weren't interested in uh, piling on or moving the needle and you know continuing the narrative that is the Harold Ballard narrative about how he ran the team. When we when we made it very clear to them, we want to talk as Jason just said about your personal experience with. With Harold, because everybody had a different take, everybody had to play by the the Harold rules. He ran the show, but everybody, uh, I think, had different results too. I mean, you look at somebody like uh, you know we've talked about Tiger Williams, who joined the Ballard reign quite early in the seventies. Uh, great relationship with Ballard. He he actually loved the man, uh, and Ballard loved him because I think Ballard knew that uh, he put on a great show for everybody and a very predictable show. Tiger knew his role. Fast forward, you know, almost, you know, 15 to 20 years later, and Wendell Clark, another, you know, great leaf, but a different story, a different result. He loved Ballard. Ballard had him on the ice at 18 years old as a leader on that team. Uh, and, and he obviously uh, made the most of that role, and Wendell became a Leafs legend because of it. So that was the fun part, I think, for Jason to bring that out and he was, you know, so disarming when he sat down with everybody that they wanted to really reflect. And it, this documentary, that span of 20 years, gave everybody a great place to reflect, I think. And that, that's the difference. Yeah, no question. Uh, a CBC doc original. Uh, everyone can find it on Gem, another great uh, production from Lone Eagle Entertainment Limited. So stick tack to both of you and the whole crew. Really fun watch. Uh, I'm excited to see how the masses uh, interact with it. Thank you. Thanks, Donovan. Great, Donovan. Great to be here. That was a fun chat, and really, I could have gone much longer with both of them. They've been on 
the street really promoting the film, and it deserves your attention. Make sure you check it out, as I mentioned, on CBC Jam and the whole crew that was involved with it, because it takes a village to get a project of this magnitude off the ground. They all deserve some love. Kevin Kimsa and Mark Sloan, executive producers, the editing that had to take place, because you're talking about generations of footage, and so to... Mike Dodson and Kean and the entire crew, I'm sure, leaving lots of great nuggets on the cutting room floor. Uh, kudos to you. You know, one of the aspects of making a project like this that fascinates me is you're making it for multiple audiences. Certainly hardcore hockey fans and ones that have loved the Leafs for a long time. But hockey fans who maybe are a bit younger, Gen X, and don't know the history don't know the full curse of Harold Ballard. And hopefully, because again, it is just a character story, fans who are just film fans and not hockey fans. And so that's a challenge for all of us content creators moving forward. I wanted to pick Jason Priestley's brain. He is involved with one of the most successful television properties of all time. Time. Beverly Hills 90210. One of the things that made director Aaron Spelling one of the most influential men in Hollywood. I'm fascinated to hear Priestley's perspective on what makes great content nowadays in relation to what made great content historically. We'll have that conversation with him after the break. My name is Lucille Bryan. I'm Clifton Bryan. My grandson has a show. And I'm so happy that you are listening to Gondi with Donovan Bennett. I'm so glad that he had a show. Thank you. Thanks, Grandma and Granddad. And as I mentioned, it's a part two of the overall conversation. As I spent time with Jason Priestley for a feature interview, one that you can find online, sportsnet.ca. But here's an excerpt of that conversation where we talk about what makes successful content, but also what makes successful teams. And we talk about the fact that his beloved Vancouver Canucks have not been successful in the recent future. We go even deeper with Jason Priestley right now. Jason, what's your relationship to the sport of hockey? As a kid, um, were you dreaming of being on set or dreaming of being on ice? <laughs> well, I'm a good Canadian boy. So, of course, I grew up uh, of a future playing in the NHL. Um, of course, those hopes were uh, very quickly dashed for me. It was, you know, my ambition quickly outstripped my ability. Um, and, I, and I realized that sort of in my, uh, I don't know, early, mid-teens. Um, and, uh, and I, uh, you know, it was easy for me to make the decision to go to theater school, um, as I, as I was exiting high school and, um, and I pursued, uh, I pursued, uh, I pursued that passion of mine. So, you know, in, in film or in television, you know, you've played the role of being the star and like in sports, it's a transition to be, you know, coach or support person. Not everyone can make that transition, but you've been able to do both somewhat flawlessly. Are there skills that are transferable in those different roles? Uh, from athletics to, to what I do uh, working in film and television? Well, just being, you know, the star of, of uh, a series and then also being able to support, um, you know, getting one off the ground. I, uh, I, I, I think so. I think that, I think that, uh, I, 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 I think that a lot of the skills that that I that I that I learned being in front of the camera are very transferable to, to what I do behind the camera. I feel like the I feel like the, the, the two jobs complement each other pretty well. Ultimately, you know, in both you're trying to connect with the audience. And in you know the documentary world that's paramount having a good central character, what was it about Ballard that in, intrigued you to be someone to explore? Well yeah, I mean he's a Ballard's a very complicated individual uh you know he's a he was a, a walking paradox you know and he he did a lot of things that were that were very contradictory and he and he left a very complicated legacy 
um, and to, to tackle a project like this, like this Ballard documentary, I, I knew that it would be, he would be a very difficult subject to try to unravel. Um, and I did my best to try to unravel him, um, but, it was, but it was difficult because I, I got very different answers um, from, from almost all of the people that I talked to. So as a filmmaker, um, I just did my best to lay out all the information uh, that I got in a, in a fair and uh, and unbalanced and not unbalanced and and you know unbiased way, uh, and let the audience uh, draw their own conclusions as to as to who Ballard was and and why he did the things that he did. As a hockey fan, what was it like for you to be a part of the project and seeing the sport from that lens? Well, it was, uh, you know, as, as a hockey fan, it was, uh, it, it, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I, got to, I got to interview Rick Vibe and Daryl Sittler and Landy McDonald and Tiger Williams and, you know, all these guys that I grew up uh, watching play hockey. You know, it, was, it, was, uh, it really was uh, uh, really exciting uh, for me, for, for, for the younger me, you know. Uh, uh, the adult me, I was... Um, it was it was it was a great honor to talk to those guys and have them feel uh, comfortable enough talking to me to to really open up and be uh, honest and forthcoming about their uh, about their feelings and about their experiences uh, with Ballard and uh, and and for a lot of them it felt like uh, like they were still. Uh, holding on to a lot of uh, frustration or, or or anger or or other emotions that that from their experiences that they had had uh, with Ballard and and they felt uh, they felt comfortable enough to, to actually uh, to actually be forthcoming uh, with those things and that was that was one of the things that I was that I, I felt really good about um, through the interview process the adult you incredibly busy bringing projects like this to life what's your level of uh, NHL fandom right now uh, I'm uh, well I uh, I'm going to the Leafs game tonight uh, so um, uh, you know I uh, I you know I love the game of hockey uh, I live in Nashville now so I, I get to Predators games uh, pretty often um, and uh, but I you know I was born and raised in Vancouver so you know I've always got uh, I've always got my Canucks uh, I in my heart, you know, because you're stuck with the team you're you're born with, right? Um, but uh, it's uh, it's you know I, I love the game of hockey. It's it's my favorite. Uh, it's my favorite sport. And it always will be. So you're the Canucks fan that continues to throw sweaters on the ice. <laughs> <laughs> well, they uh, you know the Canucks are uh, they're having a difficult year this year. They they dug themselves a pretty big hole at the beginning of the season, and uh, unfortunately, they just haven't found a way to dig themselves out of it yet. I, I, what do you think the problem with the Canucks? I mean, you work in this industry. What do you think the problem with the Canucks is this year? Oh, they don't have a plan. Is it right? coaching? I, 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 is there a cancer in the locker room? <laughs> I, I love you doing my job better <laughs> than me. I, I, I think the expectations end up being uh, one of which, well, we should be one of those Canadian teams in the playoffs, and we need to fast track that happening and not right. building to what the ultimate goal is in a championship. So you kind of take those shortcuts. So you so you don't think that they're that that they're bringing players along through their through their junior program and and then and then maturing them slowly enough and bringing them up to the to the big club the way that the, the way that the Red Wings used to the way that great example. I mean the Red Wings yeah. used to do it unbelievably they're well. They're the gold right? standard. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that you're a director and now you're once again asking me. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know if they've been patient enough. Uh, in that market, uh, you know, given the desire in that market right. for a winner. Um, but either way, uh, I hope it doesn't end up in a riot. Who do, you, who, do you, who do you think the problem is? Do you think it's coach, do you think it's GM, do you think, do you think it's the ownership group? Who do you think pushes too hard to bring the players along too fast? I would say, I would say the ownership group. I, I, would, I mean, I, I think leadership, like on anything, on a film set, kind of right. trickles down from the top. So I, I would say, they don't, but what do you think? I don't disagree with you. I mean, the, the, one, the one constant that the Canucks have, have had for the last 25 years has been the ownership group. Because yeah. they've, they've been through how many GMs and how many head coaches? Yeah. And nothing ever changes. No. 
No. Right? No. So you got to look at the one constant. Yeah. yeah. The common denominator, if you will. Yeah. The, the, whether it's the Canucks or the NHL uh, as a whole, I see some similarities in the entertainment industry where, you know, it's pretty fragmented, lots of disruption, be it technology or coming out of COVID. You're tasked with finding a way to produce things of entertainment for wide audiences. What are some of the learnings that you have that, you know, if people at the AHL office reached out and said, Jason, help us bring our sport to the next frontier, you would say to them? Well, it, it's funny you bring this up because, of, uh, you know, I've, I've got, you know, I've got, I've got a couple of NHL projects that, I've, that I'm actually working on getting made. And, and the thing about uh, uh, hockey is that, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a sport that does very well here in Canada, does pretty well in America, but once you get outside of North America, it, you know, people are like, hockey, nobody cares, right? So, so you need to, you, hockey needs to be in, in the background, or it needs to be, uh, it, it needs to be like just a part of the movie. It can't, it can't be a hockey movie. It can be a movie uh, where hockey is, is an element of it, or maybe, you know, maybe one of the, it's, it, but it can't, it can't be, you know, like a movie like, um, although we all love Slapshot, like, you know, like Slap, but, but Slapshot also is like a character-driven movie that, the, you know, do you know what I mean? Like, like there's a, there's a, you have to be careful not to, not to have things called a hockey movie because then no, no outside of Canada and America and like the northern states of America, nobody will go watch it. I think I think that's the most important thing. Like even in this Ballard documentary, like we were very careful to to craft it so that so that even people who aren't Toronto Maple Leafs fans, or even if you're not a hockey person per se, you know, I, I spent the first act of the movie setting up the whole. You know, here's the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Here's 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 the history of of all this stuff. So so once we get into the second act of the movie. You know, everybody knows the history of everything and where we are. And now you can just go on the on the crazy ride of who's this crazy, paradoxical, you know, larger than life Canadian figure who who wrestled control of this team away from everybody else and then ran it into the ground. Um, um, be, be, and you don't have to be a hockey fan to enjoy that story. You just have to like you know, uh, stories about crazy rich characters who do things that don't make sense. So if you, so if you enjoyed watching Donald Trump's presidency over here and watching him almost destroy America and the world, you're going to love this movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. It's, uh, Canadians, we, we enjoy the sport, but we always compare it to the past. We can't enjoy the current Leafs without comparing them to the championship Leafs. We can't right. enjoy Connor McDavid without comparing him to Gretzky. I wonder for you if you can appreciate what it's like for the men in the arena right now because we are you know, 20 plus years removed from 90210 and I'm sure every day of your life people interact with you wanting to talk to you <laughs> about something you did before when you're doing great things now. Can you appreciate what that dynamic is for current players? Yes, and I'm sure it's uh, I'm sure it's incredibly uh, frustrating uh, for them. But uh, but but also, you know, the league is incredibly different. The game is incredibly different. The the management group that owns the Leafs now, MLSE, is incredibly different. And they you know and they, and they spend money, and the team is incredibly well supported. Um, you know, it's it's a it's, it's a very 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 different time. And and th and thankfully so, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure the players, uh, I'm sure the players are very thankful of that. You know, the, you know, one of, one of the one of the saddest uh, things in in our documentary is when uh, you know, like Gary Lehman was talking about, you know, and and some of the other players were talking about. Um, I think it was Lanny McDonald was talking about, you know, players not wanting to get. Uh, not wanting to get drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs back then in the in the 70s because because the, the because the, the you know the franchise was in such disarray and there was so much chaos and it and it was it was heartbreaking to him and you could see he was like he was like it was so sad that that everything was in such disarray that like players didn't want to 
come and play in Toronto. It was horrible. And that's certainly not the case now. I mean, it's, you know, Toronto's one of the, you know, first-class operation from top to bottom. Well, I think you're going to be getting many calls thanking you. As people consume the documentary, there'll be a better perspective of, oh, Sens fans, you think you have it bad right now? Leafs fans, you think you have it bad right now? Canucks fans, you think yeah. you have it bad right now? Why don't you go watch the, uh, the Harold Ballard story, uh, and, and you'll get a uh, different perspective. Uh, thank you much, and congrats. Donovan, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jason Priestley. You know, he put me on the spot there, show, asking me about the Canucks and why have they not been more successful and where should you place the blame? And I was looking around, been like, Jeff Merrick in here? Is, is, is Marchese about to walk through that door? Is Elliot Friedman going to weigh in? Because I don't feel in a position to cast aspersions on how franchises are run because it's one thing like the Canucks to have an ownership group that has been there for a while and you haven't had success. It's an entirely different thing like the Harold Ballard Maple Leafs, like the Sterling Clippers, like the Sarver Suns, like the Snyder Redskins, where you're running a toxic organization, where not only are you not getting wins and losses, but the real L's are you're harming people's lives. And it brings me back to our conversation with John Amici about the fact that we come to sports, we gravitate towards it so much because of these life lessons, these beautiful things. And often that's told in story form. It's told in documentaries. But we also have a lot of documentaries if you scroll through whatever your favorite on-demand platform or streamer is, where that documentary is exposing some really seedy behavior in sports. And so often, that fish rots from the head. It's the top of the organization, the people with the most power, the owners, who are generally exclusively rich, old, male, and white. Hearing the conversations that we've had for the balance of this show, what does it make you think when you think of the state of ownership in many scenarios in sport? And these are just the scenarios that we know about. Oh, yeah. It's true. We, there's probably it, it does make you wonder how many things go on behind closed doors that we'll never, ever hear about. I mean, it, it, it does remind me to a certain extent when we talk about owners, and we kind of had this conversation, and you you had this conversation with with Kevin Blackstone um, a couple months ago when we were talking about the Commanders and his documentary and so on. And I I remember one of the things Kevin brought up was because uh, like, how how is Dan Snyder still an owner in the NFL? Which is something you you'd asked him, and I think his answer was something along the lines of, "Well, they're afraid to turf him because." they probably all have skeletons in their closet. Like they, maybe all of them do like certain, like how many, you know, I think a lot of the, in the NFL, a lot of the most powerful owners are referred to as let's say Jerry Jones or Robert Kraft or anyone else. And you have very, these very rich and powerful individuals. And I mean, you know, you talk about how people become billionaires in the first place, probably have to do some relatively unethical things. I just, I, I feel as though that's a big part of, ownership in basically any sport you can certainly talk about like sports washing when it comes to the purchasing of franchises in uh, like the Premier League for example right that's a conversation we've had before but as as it pertains to Harold Ballard I I guess my my question Donovan is is if we'd seen the to the extent the kind of stuff where it was publicly known the kind of things that Harold Ballard did for, you know, to other people, to the players, to employees, like would he would that owner still be allowed to be an owner today, given the usage of you know maybe social media or social justice being present a little bit more? I mean, you look at the NBA and Donald Sterling is a name you mentioned, and how he was ousted pretty quickly, and Robert Sarver to a lesser extent as well because of athletes speaking up. Like, do you think that? Do you think that would be the case today? Yes. So we had the conversation about Dan Snyder with Kevin Blackstone, what, in October? Yeah. Now, it didn't air in October. 
because this podcast wasn't a thing in October. So we're bringing you a little bit behind the curtain. If you haven't heard that episode, scroll back in the feed, not as far as October, but you'll find it. It's good. Listen, but sadly, everything that Kevin Blackstone said then is still true. He is still as of today, a NFL owner. You mentioned Robert Kraft. There are things in his past. He is still an owner. Google him. You mentioned Jerry Jones. There are things in his past. There are things in that organization's past that he oversaw that allegedly happened to his own daughter. He is still an owner. Robert Sarver. Robert Sarver was a open secret. Like Amino Hassan has gone on television numerous amount of times for various sports broadcasting entities and told stories about Robert Sarver. He had a team. Earl Watson, assistant for the Toronto Raptors, has spoken, has written about Robert Sarver. Nothing changed. He kept his team. So for some reason, there has to be a level of inertia that is met to change those things. But if the question you're asking is, could bad men behave badly in plain sight and still keep what they own? I think the answer is sadly, unquestionably, yes. The president of the United States, not only did he say things in front of live mics, even when things were unearthed, uh, September surprise, if you will, in the political realm of him doing bad things when he didn't know that he was mic'd, talking in a trailer about what he does to women and what women let him do to them. Even he didn't have his campaign railroaded. In fact, some people think that was a turning point for his campaign. Sadly enough, in a positive way. So call me skeptical. Call me cynical. I don't know if anything really, really has changed from the Ballard years to now. I think the only thing that changed is that we have more mediums with which to consume everything that was going on. He had to pick up a rotary phone and dial and call a reporter who then took quotes and then typed them into a typewriter, hopefully in time to make the printing press so that it would show up on your doorstep the next day. Now he's, he's FaceTiming into a show and saying what he wants to, and it is immediately on our phones via push alert. I think, I think the speed with which he would have been destructive would change, but I don't think him being able to be an owner and destructive would change because our owners now are pretty destructive. Do you think at all that the use of, or the proliferation, maybe a better way of saying it, of social media has lent itself to people being more careful owners? Again, because like these guys are, these guys, a lot of these people feel as though they are untouchable, which is why they say and do the things they do. And like you're like you're outlining in a lot of cases, unfortunately, that that is true. That is the case. But I, I do kind of wonder if maybe with the with the ability with the court of public opinion being able to convict anyone at any time of more or less anything. I do. I do kind of wonder whether or not these these uh, people who previously considered them untouchable themselves untouchable are a, a smidge more careful. Well, they're not replaceable, so they don't have to be right. careful. They, their level of care is the leverage that they have. I, I can take you down. You're going to lose your job. Where else are you going to work? I have friends in this industry. That's the cloak of silence that really hangs over all of this is because if you're going to be a whistleblower, what's your end game? The fact that Daniel Snyder... It, is essentially, if you believe reports, skimming money from other owners and yet still is able to own his team. On top of the fact that he's not really fully leveraging his market so that other owners can't fully realize 
the financial ceiling of being an NFL owner only because he may or may not have dirt on some of them and he may look into their past and they may proactively not want to set a precedent where if they have a transgression, they could lose their team. That level of protection is next level. So I, to me, this is the biggest difference. They're not replaceable. There are literally only so many people in the world who have the amount of capital to be in that club. And most of those people in that club don't want anyone in that club that don't play by the same rules as them, don't look like them. Oprah could be a pro owner if she wanted to. Tyler Perry could be a pro owner if he wanted to. But they haven't been led in that club. Josiah has, and we'll see how that plays out. I think the biggest difference is they're not replaceable because they have the capital. I can get someone to run the ball as hard as Ray Rice. So when public opinion changes about him, he's no longer as valuable to me. He's utility. I can get rid of him. Although many people would want to own a pro sports team because it's a professional ATM, there are only so many people who are in that conversation. And you have to convince the existing board of governors to let a new person in the club. And I think that is the line of protection that these men have. Again, men, because essentially just men. Right. That nobody else has. I mean, this is the world we live in. We just witnessed last week what producer of Tim and Friends, Thomas Dobby, coined the oil money derby where PSG, you know, played uh, against, you know, Ronaldo in the Middle East, off schedule in the middle of a season only because, you know, both teams were, were making, you know, sports washing money off of it. Well, did you, did you see that someone paid, it was something like $25 million for what was effectively a, a, a VIP ticket to that game uh, and what what you get for twenty five million dollars is you just get to meet Messi and Ronaldo and you get like to sit in a suite to watch the game. Twenty five million dollars. It's next level wealth that I don't think people I, really. Understand. I can't even comprehend that. Like for a, one game. Think about. My mind goes to think about the things you could do, for good with twenty five million dollars. That's yeah. one, right? How many areas of the world that need clean water could get in. How many areas of the world that need medicine, that need hospitals, that need food? So that's one. But I'm going to take off my, you know, philanthropic hat for a second. Even if you're just thinking as a capitalist, how many business ventures, how many smart investments, how many ways could you make that money grow instead of literally lighting it on fire just to shake hands with, two other human beings in a suite. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason why that isn't a stretch for them is because $25 million for those people change in the couch cushion in an era where we don't keep change anymore. Cause we're well, tapped. And th- this is a, uh, this is also less sports related, but I had seen this as well in the same, in the same uh, kind of same venue, I suppose was, in Dubai for an hour worth an hour concert, Beyonce was being paid. I think it was anywhere between 20 and $24 million for an hour long set for like someone's birthday party. And I, and I think there is a pretty long history of, of uh, artists going and playing private venues for obscene amounts of money. There's a, there's actually a great article in GQ. I'd read about this where they interviewed a whole bunch of different, uh, pretty famous artists and musicians that have gone overseas to, to do this kind of thing. But like, my goodness, $24 million. I mean, I, I am perfectly happy for Beyonce to go and get that money, but like, my goodness, I can't, I can't imagine paying that much money for, for an hour long concert. I can't imagine being at the state where, you know, uh, I'm going to have plans in a couple weeks. Just 
just book a book a bar mitzvah and I'll make a cool 25 mil. That's a that's another level of equity that you know you could just half ass it through a short set and make, you know, a a, a small country's worth of uh gross income. I do want to I do want to ask you one more thing as well cuz as we get back to the topic of owners and we we talked a little bit about how Ryan Reynolds is someone who the NHL would, I'm sure be thrilled to have as an owner because he is super famous and he's a, he's a, not only is he a famous actor, he's a famous Canadian actor. Um, like, just like you talked to Jason Priestley in this very episode. Um, I don't know if Ryan Reynolds, maybe he is actually, is he as famous now as Jason Priestley was then? I, I am too young to have watched 90210 to unfortunately date myself. So I can't exactly speak to that, but. Oh, show you gotta go through the archives. 90210 and Melrose Place. Watch them both. Yeah, I, uh, I I did recently recently rewatch a couple episodes where both uh, where where Jason Priestley and a number of the 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 co stars were on different episodes. Like, I think I know Jason more honestly more from Private Eyes when that, from that T, that CBC show than from I know two one zero personally. But anyways, I digress. Uh, Ryan Reynolds courted by the NHL, but like you, you can't tell me as, as good as that would be for the NHL to have him be a, just even a smallest part of a minority group. You can't tell me that if the NHL would, if there was some way, shape or form for Jeff Bezos or some corporation, for example, to buy in to an expansion team or to own the Ottawa senators, something like that, they wouldn't vastly prefer that because maybe that more aligns with, and it's not just the NHL, all leagues, but it more aligns with the, the values the Board of Governors sees when it comes to keeping the membership largely samey-samey. I hope not. I mean, one, beggars can't be choosers. So I'm, I think you, you take either. But I, I suspect, sadly, that you're correct. But hopefully the daredevil gets a little minority share, but can be the... Head uh, shareholder when it comes to league events, get a little Wrexham FC type of impact with not only the Sens but the league because I, I do think, in many ways, at that level of leadership, we need to see a breath of fresh air. We certainly could see what leadership looked like at that level in the 70s. Uh, and you get a window into it with Offside, the Harold Ballard story. Check it out on Gem. It's 90 minutes that fly by. It's worth your time. The hour or so that we have with you has flown by. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.